Welcome back to the Positivity Podcast with me, your host, Robert Coach Campbell. If this is your first time joining us, then I hope you're ready for some positivity. The stories are inspiring and the guests are amazing. So let's not waste any time and get straight into episode 10 and the season one finale. My guest on this episode really needs no introduction. After being viewed in 64 million homes worldwide, she was portrayed as the baddie character in the most successful Netflix show during the COVID pandemic. The real lady, however, is nothing like her on-screen image. She has dedicated her life to animal welfare and preservation, and a fight for big cat conservation goes on even after multiple death threats, most famously the one from Tiger King's Joe Exotic. The strength and positivity she shows comes from a difficult life, and it's impressive to see how she turns so many negatives into positives. So without further ado, I give you the one and only queen of the big cats, Carol Baskin. Who is Carol Baskin? I'm kind of a one-trick pony because I just have one goal, and that is a world where all wild cats live free. And I think the first step to doing that is ending the captivity with big cats. So that has been my goal for the last 20 years, is to try and stop the breeding and captivity of big cats so that we can save them in the wild. Yeah, and I noticed from doing my research, you kind of started off with sort of normal household cats. You know, you were getting involved with saving strays and, and, and stopping the abuse of, of household sort of pets. Where did that kind of go into uh, the big cats? Because obviously, you, I think you've said before, you've been sidetracked by the big cats. You thought it'd be an easy problem to fix. And like you say, 20 years later, you are still working on big cats. When I was eight or nine years old, I discovered that domestic cats were being killed in shelters due to overpopulation. And so that was something that I felt like I could dedicate my life to. And I would often work as many as three jobs because I knew it was going to be a very expensive undertaking to do that. And along the way, I began raising and showing show cats, Himalayans and Persians. And now that I know how that whole industry works, I would never do that. But I was... 16 or 17 at the time and what would happen is these show cats are bred to such an extreme that we would end up at the vet's office all the time and so if a bobcat got hit by a car the vet can fix them up in 30 minutes to an hour but then there's months of rehab for that cat to be ready in fighting shape to be released and so they would ask me to rehab and release the cats which I did because they knew I loved cats and let me tell you, there's nobody more unappreciative than a bobcat. <laughs> yeah. Wicked. Oh, wicked. They are so vicious, and they just do not want your help. But, you know, in that case where they can't hunt for themselves, they really need your help. And so I was happy to provide that from the time that I was 17 until I was in my early 30s when my late husband, Don, and I were at an auction buying llamas. And a guy walked in with a six-month-old bobcat and said that his wife didn't want the cat anymore because she was growing up to be a bobcat. And so the guy next to me started bidding on her. And I leaned over to him and I said, when that cat grows up, she's going to tear your face off. And he said, I'm a taxidermist. I'm just going to club her in the head in the parking lot and make a den decoration out of her. And so I started crying and my husband started bidding and we brought her home with us. But she had been declawed. And she came from a different state, so she couldn't be released back to the wild. And she ended up being our pet, our very terrible, terrible pet. (laughs) And instead of thinking, man, this is really horrible having a cat that pees all over the house and tears everything up and is like, you know, just terrorizing the whole family. And my husband said he wanted to find somebody that she could grow up with. And so he started calling around and he found a guy who said that he would sell him a bobcat to raise with her. And when we got there, it turned out to be a fur farm, and they had 56 bobcats and lynx. And I asked them what they were going to do with those cats, and they said, because there was an awful lot of them, and I'd never heard of anybody having a bobcat as a pet before. And he said that they were a fur farm, and when they reached a year old, they would just slaughter them for their fur. And so we came home with 56 bobcats and lynx. And then people started calling and saying, would you take my lion? Would you take my tiger? And you guys in the UK, you fixed this problem back in the 70s. But here in the United States, we are still just, <laughs> we're such 
idiots. <laughs> we allow this sort of thing to happen. Yeah. So it started us on a quest back in the 90s to end the private possession of big cats. And you're right. I, I was so naive because I thought, how hard can that be to fix? Oh, my gosh. It has taken forever. But I think we're really close to getting that done now. So I'm very excited about the prospects of our federal bill passing this year. Yeah, it's it's from what I've seen, it's looking really positive because you did have success with previous bills, but there was loopholes written into them, wasn't there, which meant that private collectors and you know these people could still get away with the exploitation of animals. Um, I've noticed as well, and it's it's probably something that's mis sort of construed within your public image that you know people have said, oh well, Carol Baskin's just as bad as these people. She's done this and. I think in the early days, there was an element where you were sort of doing a hotel experience and the sort of breeding thing because you thought at that time genuinely that that was how you were going to be able to help. And obviously you worked out it wasn't and you are where you are today. What was what was it that sort of changed your view um, on the sort of breeding side within how to help big cats? There were several things that happened. So we started the sanctuary in 1992, which was before the internet came along. Yeah. And the only people that you could turn to for advice were the breeders and dealers, because when I tried to contact the um, zoos, they saw me as just being part of the problem. I was yeah. a private owner. Yes. And so they wouldn't tell me, you know, what do I need to feed these cats? How much space do they need? I didn't know that. And yeah. so the breeders and dealers said, oh, the zoos don't know what they're doing. These cats are going to go extinct. We need to breed them for future generations. And so I believe that. Yeah. And so from about, we did the huge rescue in 92 or 93 um, of 56 cats. In 94, we rescued 28 more off another fur farm. And the following year, 22 off another fur farm. And by then, you know, we had like 150 cats, 200 cats. Um, and people started calling with their, their bigger cats, like lions and tigers. And so we were just, we were, we were learning from the absolute wrong people. And so I started going to the, they have like trade shows for different industries and the American Zoological Association or the Association of Zoos and Aquariums rather is the big accrediting body for the big zoos and they have an annual conference. So I started going to that and that's when I learned, and this would have been about 90, let's see, 93, 94, 95, so right around 95, I yeah. um, started learning that none of these animals were ever going to serve any kind of conservation value because you can't trace their pedigrees back to the wild. These private owners get them from zoos who are discarding them out the back door because everybody wants to see cute little cubs, but they can't keep all those cubs every year, so they would sell them to private owners, and they wouldn't say who the parents were because they didn't want it coming back that it was the zoo yeah. selling them. So they were not traceable, so the wild not serving any kind of conservation value and um as a result we stopped breeding because we figured out that there's no reason to be breeding cats for life in cages if they can't be set free there was one exception to that that was with ocelots and we were working with the aza the association of zoos and aquariums because what they had intended to do was breed ocelots and release them back into the southern states in the u.s because they used to live there But what they discovered was that all of the ocelots that were in zoos and private collections had come out of Central and South America, where their primary diet are snakes. And when they released them into Texas, the first thing the ocelots did was to go after snakes, which are rattlesnakes there, and it wiped out the entire program. And so they learned from that that these animals have regional instincts. It's not like you can just take an ocelot from anywhere and put it anywhere. It has to go back into the area where it came from. And so... After we saw what happened there, we were just like, no more. We're not going to breed anymore. So we stopped breeding entirely in 1997 yeah. and um, had a couple of accidents where I was trying to separate the cats as quickly as I could. And we had some cats that were like 18 to 19 years old, which is way past breeding age, who, of course, had kittens. Yeah. <laughs> so there were a couple of small cats. We never bred lions or tigers there. Yeah, I suppose sometimes you can't stop nature. You know, it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> no matter how hard you try yeah so do you do you think the zoos are now more friendly towards what you're trying to achieve or do you think that they maybe still have that standoffish approach with you where they see you as still maybe part of the enemy or 
all the work you've kind of done within the sort of legislation side has bought you the credibility to, to kind of be respected? We have a love-hate relationship. Oh, yeah. <laughs> On the one hand, you know, I am getting rid of these nasty little roadside zoos, which are competition to the big accredited zoos. So I think that the bigger zoos appreciate the fact that I am calling out these really nasty roadside zoos and trying to get people to realize that these animals don't belong in those places. But I think that the big zoos are afraid of my overall mission, which is no cats in cages. They're in the business of having cats on display. And I don't think that cats should be bred or, you know, they're rarely ever taken from the wild for that purpose. But Um, I just don't think they belong in cages and they don't like that message. So that's been the biggest holdout for me in this entire effort to um, create a world where all wild cats live free is that people for hundreds of years now have taken their children to zoos and they have told themselves that the reason they do that is to cause their children to care about conservation and nature when in fact What you're teaching your child is that it's okay to take away the heritage of these magnificent animals and hold them in prison cells as long as that amuses you in some way or teaches you some kind of a lesson. And that couldn't be, that's just like the worst thing you could teach a child. So I've been trying to figure out how do we get zoos to adopt the idea of not having animals in their cages. And we spent 2020. 2019, 2020, and this year, all in trying to build out virtual reality and augmented reality experiences that zoos could then offer to their patrons that wouldn't require having exotic cats in cages. Yeah, it's it's, it's obviously quite an ambitious one. Um, I think you get that when you watch um, like a documentary like Blackfish. That very much displays, like you say, we, we go and we see these animals in the tanks and we don't actually realize how badly you know that is for their mental state and their psychology because it's kind of like oh we're helping because it's it's packaged and advertised by big big providers like the zoos like the you know sea world places like that that it's it's helping um how do you how do you think we then go about helping in a way where the zoo is removed or what what does the zoo become in your perfect world love to see them become location-based experiences so if you think about some of these video arcades that you can go to where you put on a headset and you get to play video games well imagine if all of the infrastructure that you already have at the zoo because they already have all these big buildings and everything already what if they were to transform those so that if you wanted to walk into the building of the himalayas and you go in there and you put on the headset but now they're blasting you with all this cold, frigid air while you are seeing snow leopards racing up and down these mountainsides in real time. I'm I'm thinking that you could have remote-controlled, internet streaming, 360 cameras out there where the snow leopards live so that you are capturing all of that drama all of the time and people are seeing what's happening in the wild in real time, that's going to make people want to protect that habitat. And if you consider, you know, all the ways that you can monetize video, whether it be through subscriptions or through advertising, imagine if all that money, or at least a huge part of it, that didn't go to the zoos, actually went into those communities where the snow leopards live. And the deal you make with them is that as long as there are plenty of snow leopards running around in front of these cameras, you guys get this huge amount of money that you never would have been able to make selling yak fur. And you have to protect those animals and take care of those cameras and make sure that you've got people that are employed because cameras are always breaking down here at the sanctuary. Yeah. <laughs> you've got jobs, you've got money coming into the communities. You have them wanting to protect the prey of those animals because they can't exist without the entire ecosystem being yeah. in balance. So this is a way that we can save our entire planet, our whole our whole life support system and we can enjoy it and we can feel good about it and we don't have to have animals in cages to do it yeah and i suppose that definitely starts with education that's that's going to be the key do you do you have an influence where you try and get in uh children at school age and teach them about you know big cats and natural environments and the threats to 
the habitat and extinction or is that something that might come up later in the, the sort of planning stage? Well, actually, the virtual reality game that we had built um, just launched in June yeah. of 2020, yeah. which was like three months after Tiger King and COVID hit. Yeah. So none of the media outlets picked up on it. But this virtual reality game is amazing. So when you put on your headset, if I can reach my headset over here, you put it on, yeah. and you are transported into the Rantham Boar Forest, and a game warden comes up to you and says, one of our tigers is missing. We need your help in finding her. We think maybe poachers have her. And then you learn from that that guide who is taking you through this forest all of the ways to track a tiger in the wild, which apply to any kind of animal. And as you gather these clues, all of a sudden you find that this tiger has been snared by poachers. And so you go through everything that our veterinarian would go through to make sure she's okay to be yeah. released right then. And then you're the one that actually cuts the snare off of her and you see her run back into the woods and go after prey. And then you come back to the ranger station and you actually, the way we have it set up, um, if you're in the U.S., you can actually make your call to Congress right then and there to ask them to support the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And so this thing came out in June, and like I said, we got virtually no uh, coverage of it. The few places that did mention it said it was a phone app game, which it's not. It's yeah, an entirely yeah, immersive yeah. game. And so we put it out for the Oculus Rift in the Oculus Store for free. Yeah. It's available on Steam for like $4.95. But then a few months ago, I was working with um, – victory xr and what they do is they supply the streams of all of these educational games and um things to schools all over the place and yeah. so we have worked with them to get that out to schools everywhere so the kids can learn about the big cats and i suppose jumping back there to tiger king you know you're doing so much effective work for the extinction of animals and the prevention of that and trying to get it into schools tiger king took away from everything good you were doing and that must have been devastating you know three months before you launch you have that much negativity around you how did you how did you deal with that you know how did you get through that period it's i can't imagine well you you mentioned blackfish and yeah. for five years the producers told us what we were working on was the cat version of blackfish yeah and we were thrilled to be working on that because we saw how effective it was for people to see the abuse of those orcas and dolphins yeah. and nobody wanted to support that after they saw that yeah. and so that's what we thought we were working on they said they were going to all of these bad guys that were abusing these animals and they were getting all this great footage of how bad the conditions were and that people were going to see that and absolutely would never pay to pet a cub after they saw this and then about a week or two before it came out on Netflix, you know how they do a little teaser saying yeah. this show's coming up and we saw it advertised and we reached out to the producers and we're like, who's doing that show? Because they said Joe Exotic was just going to be, you know, a tiny little portion yeah. of what they were doing. They yeah. were going to do it on all of these people that were exploiting animals. And all of a sudden they didn't want to talk to us. And so we sat there and binge watched it like everybody else. Yeah. And when we got through, my husband and I just sat there looking at each other on the couch, and we thought, well, that was a missed opportunity. And then my phone started ringing, and it rang like every two minutes for the next three months with people just screaming obscenities at me and saying how much they hated me, and they wanted to kill me, and they wanted to kill the cats. I'm like, why do you want to kill the cats? Yeah. And they said, because they don't belong in cages. I'm like... Did you not get that that's where I'm... <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, my yeah, that's what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. But that was not what people took away from Tiger King. Yeah, it's... Uh, obviously, I've watched it myself. It's. I don't think anybody hasn't seen it. It's, you know, it, it fell at the right time with COVID to be the most watched show around the world. And, and like you say, if it had been like a Blackfish or the, the new documentary that's just out, the, the Sea Conspiracy it would have been so impactful for doing something positive. And it's, it's something obviously within my work at Coach Campbell, it's, it's all about positivity. You know, the company slogan is choose positivity. And I, I find that the more guests I have on the podcast, the more I hear about the media focus on the negative. And I, I see it obviously myself, but it's, it's like you say, you, you're sold the dream of this is the next Blackfish. This is going to do so much for, you know, petting, 
elimination, cub breeding elimination, you know, probably a great platform to advertise what you were just about to put into schools and it didn't happen. That must have been that must have been frustrating if nothing else. Um how did it how did it impact, you know, because like you say, to for somebody to phone you every two minutes and, you know, either make a threat on your life or, you know, just say how horrible a person you are, it's that that's gotta be, you know, for you still to be sat here with a big smile on your face, that's that's the negative to positive thing I talk about. And and how did you go about that? You know, I, I'm really appreciative of the fact that if they were going to target anybody and try to villainize anybody, that they chose me instead of any of the other amazing women who are working in this industry. And it's mostly women. There's some men that are trying to end the abuse, yeah. but most of the sanctuaries are actually run by women. And I think the reason that I'm glad it was me instead of them is because I just have a very strong belief that everything that happens is always happening for the best and that even the most awful things that happen in our lives, if, if we survive them, and I say everything that doesn't kill me makes me stronger, yeah. but if we survive them, we look back and go, oh my gosh, that was such a turning point or that was such a, a, a flexion point in my life. In, or an inflection point rather in my life that caused me to be able to be stronger and to do better and to have a louder voice. And so I wouldn't wish Tiger King on anybody, but I think just by virtue of the fact that I do really believe that it was all for the best, it has not, um, it's not damaged me in any way. Yeah. And do you think, and obviously going back into your sort of younger years, you had quite a traumatic sort of youth. Do you think that maybe gave you that tough skin to be able to deal with that amount of negativity that you'd already probably come through some of the most horrific things that you were you were kind of impervious to people calling you names or you know just being horrible you were kind of like I've, I've suffered at a level way beyond do you think possibly I think so um, you know I was raised in a very fundamental Christian family and I had been, um, at the age of 15, I had been raped by some guys. My best friend had set me up and actually sold my virginity to them. And one of them tried to kill me, actually, yeah. had put a knife to my throat. I was bleeding all over the place. And one, there were two brothers, twin brothers. And then this third guy that lived there um, actually saved me from those two boys and so managed to keep me from dying that night. And so it was my first real experience with the outside world. I had lived a very sheltered life in private schools and such up until that point. And, you know, my only friends were friends from church. And so that experience, because of the fact that my family was so, um, <laughs> they were such a bunch of Bible thumpers that they believed any time a woman was raped, it was because she had asked for it. Yeah. She had, in some way, she had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I had, you know, I slipped out the window that night with my friend. We were going to go down there and talk to these guys. I just thought we were going to go talk. Yeah. And I could not tell my parents until I was probably in my 40s or 50s when it actually happened. I never told my dad, but I told my mother when I was in my late 40s, early 50s. And I think that that really did change my perception of the outside world. I felt like it was a very dangerous place and I had to be so strong. Yeah. I, I can remember with my daughter when she was old enough to understand, I told her, if you ever feel like your life is in danger, you need to just bow up like a snake and go after them because you will so get them off balance with like, oh my gosh, she knows something I don't know if she's coming at me while I'm trying yeah. to be the aggressor. And I think that it's because I've learned throughout my life that that has been the way to deal with that kind of threat. And so I've always been very quick to um, respond yeah. <laughs> with a lot of aggression yeah. <laughs> if you're coming after me or after somebody that I love. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's something that's missed in the media portrayal of you is you know nobody really goes into that sort of depth of your backstory, so they don't really understand who you are now, you know why you like you say why you react the way you react, and I think with Tiger King, they had the perfect opportunity to show the character of somebody who's out there fighting to do something positive, 
and they kind of went for the sort of salacial, you know, titivation, the crazy character focused on that off the Joe Exotic and kind of missed out on, like you say, the perfect opportunity to go, these are the different characters within the sort of, you know, the, the big cat animal world, but we're only going to show you one in depth. We're going to, like you say, they didn't really look into, uh, you know, like Doc Antle and people like that, you know, they sort of skirted over it quickly and there was a few other characters that were quickly shown, but it was, the focus was on a negative. And it was, it, I found it strange because the character who ended up being the most negative, you know, is currently in prison, was the one who was portrayed in the most positive sort of way, which I, I couldn't understand because it was, it's kind of billed as a documentary, but it was, it was more a sort of serialized soap, the way it was kind of filmed, you know, it was characters. So I think people maybe missed out on, Carol Baskin is actually a real person who's lived this life it's kind of like you're kind of portrayed as the, the sort of wicked witch character. So it's kind of, which I thought was unfair, you know, and I think there's been a, there's been quite a bit of media around the producers of Tiger King and the way that it was portrayed. And I think it's, I think obviously the, there's much more to your story because you then ended up um, with your first husband and that was a, a sort of domestically violent, um, unhappy kind of place for you as well, wasn't it? Well, it depends on how many husbands you're talking about, but because um, my first husband and I were not legally married, but okay. I called him my common law husband. He was extremely physically abusive. My second husband, Mike Murdoch, who is the father of my daughter, yes, I was legally married to him, and he was another one who was very physically abusive. And then Don Lewis was my third husband in my world second husband according to the court records yeah um so whenever people are like your first husband your third husband your fourth husband it's like <laughs> counting is a little difficult there but you know one of the things um that you just touched on there we started filming with eric good and rebecca chaiklin i think in 2015 and in 2018 they brought me their sizzle reel their pilot you know what they were going to show the networks in order to sell the show yeah and it was exactly what we had been working on it was all these people abusing animals and then at the end the end phrase was but there's one person who has dedicated her life to ending the abuse of these cats and it's carol baskin and so this was exactly what we thought we were working on and they tried to sell that uh, from what they told us, they tried to sell it to CNN, and CNN didn't want it. And so I think that that may have been the, the turning point for them. It's like, okay, well, we have this documentary about this person who's doing all this work to save these tigers from all these crazy people, and nobody wants to see that. So what would we be able to do with this story to make it saleable yeah. to somebody? And I think that's where they kind of, you know, probably went in and just completely flipped the script to say, well, what if we made her the villain? That would be fun. <laughs> and it's like, nobody would ever expect that. And yeah. I think that there were dollar signs in their eyes. We, I, I can't verify this, but somebody in the industry told me that they sold that for $16, $16 million to Netflix. Yeah. And with that kind of temptation, I can see them doing that. Yeah. Even though I think they absolutely knew that it was not, not an accurate... Uh, yeah. of who I am. Which is quite strange as well because, you know, in the, the sort of Tiger King experience, you're kind of billed as the woman who's money hungry and it's all about money and things like that. And actually, if anybody was to do the research, they'd, they'd understand when your, your third husband, second on paper, went missing. You were in a position where you were running a facility, at, I think it's $500,000 to run and you were down to your last $20,000 in the bank. Everybody thinks you became this, you know, wealthy millionaires overnight, and that wasn't the case, was it? You know, you were, you, it, it was, you know, it's a passion of love, not, you know, because you were making all this money. And, you know, if you even go further back, I was the person who actually made us wealthy. My husband could, be, my husband Don Lewis could barely read or write. Yeah. And the only part of our real estate business that he did was when we would go out and look at the properties, I would do all the research to find out what was a good deal. And then we'd go and look at the property and make sure it was actually still there, you know, yeah. hadn't burned down or something. He'd ride along with me and he'd go to the sale and he did. But everybody knew that I was the person that was earning income because when we got married, I had always told everybody, this was back in the 80s. So 
back then, a woman had no ability to deal with yeah. the banks or anything yeah. on these deals. So I told everybody that my name was um, Gilda Goldman hmm. and that I worked for a man named Initial C, which was my name, Carol, and the last name was Stairs, which was my maiden name. Yeah. So I had this business card that I give everybody saying I was the secretary to Mr. Stairs. And I was just doing his research for him. And they were happy to do that. Yeah. So when we got married, everybody said to Don, they were like, oh, it's so good to finally meet Mr. Stairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, I suppose he created a fictional character and he just lived right into it. Yeah. And I suppose there's, there's that thing where, you know, the whole portrayal of you and, and Don's relationship was this absolutely toxic, terrible thing. And again, when you do the research, it, it, it's a million miles from that. You know, you don't you don't stay married to somebody for ten years if you don't like them at all. You know, and he was, you know, he was um, he was a bit of a guy, wasn't he? You know, he had multiple girlfriends, and and you still persisted with with trying to make everything work as with that going on. How do you how do you do that? Is that how do you find that goodness in somebody when they're treating you in that sort of negative way? You know, I, I fell in love with him when I was 19, yeah. in 1981, and then we got married 10 years later in 1991, and then I lost him in 97, so we had been together for a long time, but yeah. you know, when people talk about unconditional love, I think most of the time they think unconditional love means as long as you don't do anything wrong, yeah. and I really had unconditional love for him. I knew that he had other girlfriends, but I just saw that as his frailties, and even when my daughter got married, I went to her and I said, look, this is just how men are. And if you're not, her husband was really, really attractive and he was a doctor and, you know, girls are going to be throwing themselves at his feet all the time. And I told her, he's going to take advantage of that. And you, you need to know up front that this is what you're signing up for and be okay with that. Yeah. And so I don't know if any mother ever gives their kid that kind of advice, but <laughs> I had been happy enough in that kind of a relationship. And, you know, toward the end, he was losing his mind and he was doing just the craziest things. But I didn't hold that against him. I was trying to get him the medical help that he needed. And it was the people you saw in Tiger King who were just robbing him blind while I was trying to do that and were trying to prevent him from getting the medical help that he needed. So that was the most frustrating thing was I feel like... <sighs> I feel like I didn't do enough to get him treated in time. Yeah. He had been diagnosed as being bipolar, but he hid that from me. That happened in June, and he was gone by August. And if I had known that he had been diagnosed that way, we could have put him on medication. But yeah. because he yeah. had so many people to cover for him and to say, oh, there's nothing wrong, I just I had no way of knowing. And, of course, he wasn't telling me. So, you know, I, I, I kick myself all the time thinking, you know, what could I have done more? Could I have just locked him in a cage until, you know, in between doctor visits so that he couldn't hurt himself? But not knowing what happened to him and then knowing that, you know, there, there could have been help for him out there if I'd just been able to get into it in time. Yeah, and I suppose that's the, the thing. When you watch Tiger King, it doesn't really cover all the facts that are out there. And, you know, if... I know my listeners will probably listen to this and they'll go, oh, what are they talking about? And they'll go and have a search and it's it's all out there. It's like you say, he was diagnosed with bipolar. That's that's a proven fact that in Tiger King's disputed that he was perfectly fine and healthy and there was, you know, there was nothing wrong with him. But there's there's medical evidence that he was he was diagnosed. There's also evidence that, you know, people around him who appear in Tiger King were heavily exploiting him financially you know one of them i think in the region a half a million dollars i think i've seen on one of the things that i, I looked into and it's strange that the, the producers of tiger king decided to admit all that evidence and go okay well carol baskin's definitely the you know bumped him off got rid of him you know and it's like it's it's crazy to me because i know i'm, I'm watching some of the the litigation things that are happening in the States. And it's, you know, you've got a lawyer who's representing Don's family who is taking adverts out and saying, if you have evidence that Carol Baskin was involved. Well, I work heavily in neurolinguistics. So you're already pre-programming people that you have an involvement. 
if you were really intent on finding out what happened to him, you'd be saying, has anybody got any evidence? Because, um, right. yeah, one of my earlier guests, he's an investigative reporter. He was the man who undercovered Jimmy Savile, who was a big paedophile in the UK, celebrity. And his thing was, when you investigate something, if you preset what you want the outcome to be, that's how you're going to shape it to fit. And I think that's the problem with um, the case with Dom at the minute is everybody's trying to make it fit because of Tiger King, that, that you have involvement, you're responsible. And they're kind of admitting all these facts that are out there that probably point in the direction of other people um, who were close to him as well. And, you know, one of the big things that, that rained out to me was the, the sheriff, um, the law authorities have never considered you in any form related to his disappearance or anything else. Now, that's kind of admitted as well, which is, you know, because it doesn't fit the narrative of Tiger King vilifying you. How do you, how do you deal with that public portrayal of you when there's so much evidence and there's so much opinion out there that, that disproves everything that's said, but because it was so popular, you've then got to deal with that. It's, you know, people forget you're a real person. So, you know, how do you, how do you get past that vilification? You know, I think it, it helps in that I can keep reminding myself that regardless of what's being said or talked about, it's not about me. It's yeah. about the animals. It's about saving them in the wild. Before we lose them, we'll lose the tiger in the next five years or so if we don't stop this cub petting. Yeah. And today there was an excellent, I was so happy, there was an announcement out of South Africa that they are uh, really strongly considering banning the uh, lion breeding projects that they had there because they were doing the same thing. They were breeding a bunch of lions, charging people to have their pictures made with them, charging people to come walk with them as they got to be bigger. You know, they look like they're full grown adults when they're about a year and a half old, but they're just kittens for the next couple of years. So, um, even though they can kill you, they won't usually try. Yeah. And then as they got to be three to five years old and got those big, beautiful manes, they would turn them loose in a cage and charge people to kill them as trophies. And yeah. so that whole industry has now been under such scrutiny and maybe because of Tiger King that they're saying, yeah, we need to stop this now. And so at least they're stopping it there. We still need to stop it here in the U.S. But those were all of the good things that came out of the fact that so many people did watch Tiger King. Yeah. And even though the, the personal um, attacks on me were totally unwarranted it did cause people to think about these issues and to start doing something about them and so for that purpose it's made it worthwhile to me a lot of people will say you know would you do it again and it's like yeah i would do it again my husband and my daughter they'd be like oh heck no no <laughs> yeah. way would we go through this again yeah but if you think about it i mean if somebody says something nasty to you you can just be like yeah that doesn't define me because you said it they say that about your mother or about your spouse yeah those are fighting words then. Yeah. And so I can yeah. see how it's been much harder for them than it has been for me. Yeah, because obviously Howie came into your life, didn't he? And, you know, he's the man you've kind of probably been looking for your whole life because you can see, especially in Louis Theroux's documentary, you know, when when Louis sort of broaches the subject of, of Don Lewis, you know, how he gets very defensive. And I suppose that's that, that thing where he just wants to protect you from that sort of salacious kind of negativity that came from Tiger King. And obviously not knowing Louis, he probably didn't have that trust level. So, it, you know, Louis, Louis is a good guy. So do you think the, the Louis Theroux documentary has done a lot of good in sort of turning around and, and maybe putting the focus back where it should have been, where, you know, these guys are abusing animals and, you know, causing the problem? has the potential it hasn't run here in the u.s right. and what i saw after tiger king was that the vast majority of the hateful um, vitriol that i got from people when i could track it back to what part of the world they came from it's mostly from the midwest of the united states so you're talking about you know kind of a 
third world country as far as the way people think in some of these Midwestern states. But in the UK, I think the vast majority of people there, even though I was, you know, it was the same show, everybody saw the same show, I think because you guys have already figured out that these animals don't belong in cages back in the 70s and they shouldn't be treated this way for so long, it was already part of your culture to say, those people who are abusing those animals, those are the bad guys and I don't care what that blonde did over there as long as she was against the bad guys we're with <laughs> yeah. her. And so I think Louis Theroux's piece has um, been great, you know, in the UK and I've gotten yeah. a whole bunch of people from the UK saying how much they loved his piece so much more than what they saw in Tiger King and they appreciated that he had set the record straight. But people in the US haven't seen it yet. So once that happens, I really do think that it will have a, an impact. Yeah, and I'm I'm hoping they do because it was it was definitely something that made me think more about you know I, I need to reach out to Carol and and get her on the podcast and get more of, of who Carol Baskin is and the good work you do because I think that's that's very much missed out in the Tiger King sort of narrative you know it's you you're the villain you've done this you've done that and you know I think when you look into everything around the sort of especially the Don Lewis thing you know it's like you would be the worst criminal in the world because when he went missing, you hired private investigators, you went to the police, you put out a reward. If you were involved, that makes you the worst criminal in the world because you're kind of going, okay, I'm going to get myself caught. You know, nobody in the, you know, no criminal in the right mind would go, I'm going to make it easy, you know. And then even in Tiger King, to talk so openly about it, it's going to attract attention to something if you were involved you wouldn't want any attention being brought to so i don't think people see that you know you're just as keen for some sort of resolution around that so that you can and i think you've said it i think you said it in louis theroux's documentary you know so you can kind of eventually go okay i told you so you know this had nothing to do with me let's move on and focus on the cats and that's that's you know where you want to be but obviously, you know, you had you had Howie coming into your life at, at that point, and what does what does he bring to you? You know, because I think it's important to to sort of get your opinion on him because that doesn't really kind of come across. He's kind of like your sidekick. He's kind of portrayed as this sort of weak man who just kind of follows you around in Tiger King, and I can already tell he, you wouldn't really be dealing with a weak man. You know, you need you need somebody strong alongside you to rein you in a bit. I, I have actually said that to men in my life that I was dating or uh, people that I was in a relationship with where I was ending it to say that I just, I need a man that is so much stronger than me that I can look up to him. Yeah. And I'm a really strong woman. Yeah. So <laughs> you can imagine what kind of man it takes to be able to put up with me one and then to love me on top of that. Oh my gosh. Uh, Howie is just absolutely He's my rock. And I had I had always had trouble with my weight, and I think it was probably after being raped, I wanted to keep men at bay. Yeah. And I always had a very, when I was younger, I had a very beautiful face and figure, and so the only way to keep men away was to stay fat. And, you know, I was trying, as I got older, to lose that weight and gone to a um, hypnotherapist. And yeah. so we had gone through all of the stuff you go through in hypnotherapy. And he said, you know, we came to the conclusion at the end of it that I was attracting this same kind of very charismatic but very abusive man, whether it was physical or in Don's case, you know, it became emotionally abusive because of his dementia, not because of him. Well, <laughs> I guess a little bit because of his, his uh, wayward ways. But yeah. um, at any rate, I decided I was going to look for somebody totally different, somebody like I had never dated before. And when I ran into Howie at the event at the aquarium, and it was an event to save domestic cats and kittens from being killed in shelters, I saw this man dressed in a three-piece suit, and he had been in a car accident years ago, so he walks kind of with an altered gait. You know, he looks very stiff. It's a wonder he can walk at all, actually. But as I see him, I'm thinking, I could really loosen that guy up. And so started the conversation with him and just came to absolutely adore him. And he was the exact opposite of anything I had ever looked for in a man before and turned out to be the best thing for me. So girls, if you are always dating that wrong guy, then just go out there and look for the guy that you think you would never want to date in your life. And that's probably your Mr. Right. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'd tell you what, there's not a true word spoken. It's 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 part of what I do with the neurolinguistics. You subconsciously become programmed into looking for the thing that you don't want. And like you say, when you break the programming, and probably like alongside the hypnotherapy, because I do a bit of that as well, that you probably broke that bit of programming which sent you in the right direction to, to look outside uh, the box you'd kind of put yourself into. This is the kind of man I need to be with. This is the man I deserve. And you kind of moved focus and, and found what is a great guy. You know, you can, in all the things I see outside of Tiger King, when you when you two of you are together, you know, when you're going to Senate or Congress or wherever you're going to fight for Big Cat, right? You know, he's, he's always by your side and it's, it's, it's beautiful to see. It really is. It's, it's such a positive image, which... Again, going back to Tiger King, I think they missed out on, you know, there's there's so much positivity around Carol Baskin that was missed out, you know, and it, it was a perfect opportunity to do some good. Um, I've, I heard recently that um, Joe Exotic had reached out to you um, to try and get himself out of jail early. He's agreed to sign up to help you with a big cap bill. Is that is that true or is that just media speculation? It's the problem with headlines. So, yeah, <laughs> I've never spoken to Joe in my entire life. I've never had a word with him, not yeah. once. And you know, the whole idea of them creating this feud when I've only ever even been in the room with him like five times, and none of those times was I ever talking to him. But um, what had happened was in an interview that my husband had done initially, yeah. somebody said something to the effect of, "Is there any way that you would ever?" try to help Joe get a pardon or something like that. Yeah. And he said, well, yeah, what he could do is actually become a spokesperson for the Big Cat Public Safety Act and help us get that bill passed. And if he did that, then I think that I could support him getting an early release. And so then people came to me and they said, well, how do you feel about it? And I said, well, I want him to do that. And I also want him to put all of these other animal abusers behind bars because he knows where the bodies are buried. He knows who these people are. He's got the dirt on them. And, you know, that's how Mario Tabro, he was in uh, Tiger King, the guy who said he was the icon for Scarface. Yes. He had been sentenced to 100 years in prison for his cocaine yeah. dealings, and he got out in 12 because he turned state's evidence and became an informant to them. And so I feel like, you know, if Joe were to do that, put the really bad, really dangerous people behind bars, because I think they're a lot more of a danger to me than he is. Yeah. He tried to kill me. They have tried to kill me. Many of them have said, you know, that they wanted me dead or they've talked about how they could get somebody in Miami who I'm assuming they're talking about Mario Tabro that could do it. And they're just a lot smarter than him. And so those, you know, it's like you don't have to worry about the dog that's barking. You have to worry about the one that's sneaking up on you. And so I would be all in favor if he were to put those guys behind bars and help us with our bill to to try and reduce his sentence. But he said he accepted my offer and that he was calling my bluff. But then he yeah, said but the bill has to be rewritten because people should be able to pet cubs and people should be able to own big cats. And it's like, this is the only two things my bill does. It ends competing and ends private yeah. possession. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say I accept and I'm not going to support this bill. Yeah, and I think that was—I think that was one of the things I'd seen that he'd, he'd accepted your offer, and that's what I thought I'll, I'll ask you because that just seemed very strange that that, that would be yeah. something going on. Again, it's—I suppose from this side of the pond we kind of see that, and it's—it's kind of like oh, that's that's just another crazy American pantomime thing going on, like the you know petitioning Donald Trump for a pardon. It was like you've killed animals, and you know you've been you've been twenty-two years for murder for hire. You know it's. At what point do you get a pardon from that? Because you, he doesn't deny it. You know, he, he openly admits that it, that's what he was doing. You know, even though he said he was set up, you know, take whatever side of that you want, he still committed the act. You know, and it, it wasn't the guy in Tiger King that he was he was soliciting. It was it was an undercover FBI agent, wasn't it? So it's kind of it's very hard to go, I've been set up by this guy and this guy, when actually it was the FBI who was, you know, and that's something that's missed in Tiger King as well. A lot of the evidence around the court case, because I've seen a few of the jurors interviewed and they were kind of like, they make us look like real idiots that, you know, we didn't, and supposedly there's hours and possibly days more evidence that's not shown in Tiger King. And that's where 
I think Tiger King maybe goes in the wrong direction of trying to make it more of a soap opera and abuse real people in the process because you know I think on, on Louis Theroux's documentary they they paid Joe Exotic and a lot of other people haven't they to uh, exclusivity agreements for the next series of Tiger King you know like it's like it's a soap opera you know did were you approached for that because <laughs> I'd imagine actually they did um, yeah. approach me and they said they wanted to clear the air yeah just months ago and I told them to lose my number I mean fool me once shame on yeah. you but fool me twice shame on me yeah and have, have you got anything in the pipeline that you, you're working on to you know maybe sort of put out your proper story and, and, and how to protect cats and you know the big cat bill and get it through you know are you working on anything with anybody else who's maybe a little more educated shall we say well, before we go there, one of the things that people can do if they really care is they can pull the um, evidence and the transcripts from the murder for hire trial. Okay. People were not allowed to be filming during that. It was such a shame. I, I so wish that they had allowed cameras into the courtroom because it would have been a whole different story for people to That's actually fun. see all of that. But That's, you can actually it? get the transcripts and read what people said and see the evidence where Joe had very clearly told the confidential or the um, undercover FBI agent to just cap me in the head in a parking lot and leave me there dead and yeah. that he had paid the other guy three thousand dollars to kill me but that guy had run off with the money i mean there were all of those pieces of evidence that came right out of joe's mouth yeah and yeah. the jury said we didn't need anything else we had joe telling us yeah, <laughs> that he yeah. Was guilty so um, as far as things i have in the pipeline i can't tell you what channel or um the details of it but we're working with itv on a pilot for a series that will oh. actually cover the work that we do at the sanctuary and what we do and what we have been doing in addition to rescuing animals is for the last gosh probably since the late 90s we have been working on trying to find out who the animal abusers are and then expose them to the public and then bring them to justice. And so we're working with a really amazing team and um, putting together a series that I think people are just going to love because you'll be coming along for the ride on everything that we really do yeah. here. And it's some exciting stuff. I mean, my daughter and I sit around reminiscing sometimes about some of the things that we have seen and done over the years and experienced. And it's like, man, if we had had film crews following us for the last 20 years, this would have been the most popular thing on TV because it's been crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose that's, that's what's needed, you know, to make that impact in something that is absolutely terrible, you know. Even in Tiger King, when you see the road shows and you see that bear pacing up and down the cage, it's so obvious that that animal is distressed. It's being kept in a, you know, a 40-foot trailer for a week at a time, put out in a tiny cage, petted. And it's like that whole bit in the, in the series is just kind of like glossed over and then it's back to, and this is Carol Baskin, this horrible person. And it's like... Am I watching the same thing here? You know, you're watching animals in distress and then they try and paint what you do at Big Cat Rescue as, as just as bad as everybody else. And it's like, yeah, but there's no breathing. It's, you know, they, they miss the, the real key points. And I think it's quite a shame. Is there is there something that people in the UK who feel passionately about it can do? I know obviously in the States it's different. You know, we don't get a vote in Congress or the Senate or whatever, but is it? Is there something that people in the UK could do to add their voice to, you know, the big cat movement? You know, I think the best thing that people can do is this whole cub petting industry only exists for one reason, because people want to show off. They yeah. want to show off on social media. Look at me holding a cute baby tiger. Look at me holding a little baby lion. Look at me holding an alligator, holding a cockatoo, holding a whatever. Yeah. And it's all for the for the social media platforms. Yeah. And so anytime you see a person that has close contact, physical contact with some wild animal or some baby wild animal, I think you can't 
you can't go at that person aggressively and tell them that they're an idiot or, you know, all of the things that I'm thinking when I see that and think, you know, how could you do that and not even wonder what's happening here? But you have to go at them with love and respect and the same way that you would want to be approached. And so what we try to do, we have something like 200 moderators. They work, they're volunteers, they do it for free, but we have about 200 moderators on our social channels who are there answering questions for people all the time and doing it respectfully. But the easiest way to educate somebody about why it's always abusive to pet these cubs is to send them to a, a website called Cub truth.com and there's just like two or three little short videos that make it so clear as to what's going on behind the scenes and then at the end of it if they're moved enough to do something then it'll send them to our our forum where they can speak to congress or do some other things so even though in the uk like you said you can't speak to our congress members you can educate yourself about why it's always abusive and send other people there too if they're doing that same sort of thing and we can just end it through education which that's why we're doing a federal bill here because you can't educate people into doing the right thing i think we have to make it illegal for them to do the wrong thing and then we can educate them but you guys already did that you already made it illegal there I'll tell you, 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 you're killing the stereotype, you know, you're not going to get any more Tiger King work because, you know, you, you sat here as the, the, you know, smiley, rational, you know, calm person, you know, you're dispelling all these rumours that you're this crazed killer, it's, I don't know, I don't know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll probably cost you another episode of Dancing with the Stars now, you know, you're not going to get invited to Strictly Come Dancing in the UK because people are going to realise actually Carol Baskin's just this normal woman who's trying to do something amazing. But yeah, who can't dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's that... another reason they won't invite me. <laughs> what was the What was the thinking between uh, with going on Dancing in the Stars? Was that just to again spread the message, and or was that maybe trying to let people see that sort of fun side of? who you are and you know dispel the sort of tiger king image or well actually it depends on who you ask so my husband and my daughter that was their goal they were like she's so much fun she will do absolutely anything she's not afraid to be you know embarrassed by skidding across the stage or anything else and when people see that they'll love her so for them it was that but for me i spent months talking to the um staff at Dancing with the Stars, saying that what I wanted out of this experience was a platform to talk about big cats. And they were like, if you come on the show, you can talk about big cats all you want. In fact, we'll do all of these radio tours and print tours and video tours where they would line up like 10 reporters at a time in a row. And I got to talk about big cat issues. And so for me, it was an ability to talk about the real victims in Tiger King, which were the cats. Yeah. And they they were so wonderful to me that even after they scratched me from the show, they still sent me media all the time because yeah, people good. were still asking, you know, are you going to bring her back for an in performance or whatever? And they'd be like, why don't you go ahead and talk to her? And so I got to talk to hundreds of people, uh, media outlets rather, about why we need to stop the cup petting. Yeah, and that's that's amazing because that's that's the goal, isn't it? That's that's what your mission is and has been for the last twenty years and. It's unfortunate that you got caught up in the whole Tiger King experience that kind of detracted away from that. But like you say, you know, that was a negative, but you've taken the positive that actually it it still managed to get people talking about what's right and what's wrong for, you know, cub petting, breeding and and big cat conservation, which is important. Definitely. So I normally wrap up with two questions and the first one is, do you have a quote or a piece of music that you go to, you know, to get yourself in the zone, to make yourself feel positive? Every morning I have a uh, vision board that I put together back in, I don't know, maybe around 2006, I think. And what's really interesting is I sit there and I look at it and it's like, that happened and that happened and that happened (laughs) because I envision it. And every morning when I get up, I picture it like it's already happened. But the music that I play that that presentation to is Happy uh, by, is it Will Will Ferrell? Uh, Pharrell Williams. Yeah, I think it's Pharrell Williams. Yeah, Will Ferrell's a comedian, isn't he? That'd be a very different song. love it and so yeah. I, I find that I stay in a happy state of mind because 
amazing. And the last question is, do you have a practice or something you do when you're in a really negative place to get you back into a positive? I do. You know, I spend so much time in this like manic happy state yeah. that when I have like a depressive um, moment, I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> it's like, oh, and it can linger sometimes for a few days. And so if I see that it's not just a passing thought and that it's just not going to go away, I drive 45 minutes out to Fort DeSoto Beach. It's a beach that is like in the middle of the week. There is nobody there. I can walk for miles and not see anybody. And I just go out there and I walk with my feet in the salt and the sand, the salt water and the sand. And it just like flushes all of that negativity right out into the ocean. And I am ready to hit the ground running again. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Well, I have to thank you massively for, for taking the time to be on the Positivity Podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Well, there you go. That was the real Carol Baskin. I'm sure if you've only seen Tiger King, you might have had a different opinion. Hopefully, we have managed to see more of who she actually is and how amazingly positive she can be. I think when I look back at all the stories we have covered in Season 1, there are so many great lessons to take away. But without doubt, every single guest has come through tough times and trauma, and they've chosen not to let it define them, but to use the experiences, and a choice to find the positive to drive them on to do amazing things. Carol was a great guest to show, no matter what is being said about you, as long as you stay true to yourself, and choose positivity, you will achieve your dreams and goals. So, as always, all the links will be available for Carol and the great work that she does. And to find out more about Coach Campbell, just give us a Google. And until I bring you even more amazing stories in Season 2, I only have one thing left to say. Choose positivity.